Welcome to Clets Heads, the podcast about bilingual children. My name is Sharon Onsworth, linguist at Radboud University in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, a mother of two bilingual children. Welcome to the third season of Clets Heads. When I started this English language edition of the podcast in the middle of the pandemic in 2020, I honestly didn't expect that three years later we'd still be going. This is largely thanks to you. Thank you for your enthusiastic responses, for sharing the podcast with others, and of course, for listening. In this episode, we're talking about individual differences. Some bilingual children end up being more bilingual than others. Researcher Joanna Parody tells us why. We hear from our first Klet's Head of the Week, Rehan, our first guest from India, and I share my first Klet's Head's quick and easy of the season concrete tip you can put into practice straight away to make the most of the bilingualism in your family, class or clinic. Keep listening to find out more. Some children growing up with more than one language end up being pretty good in all of them, whereas for others there's a clear imbalance between their languages usually in favour of the one that they use at school and the one that's used in the wider community. Some children actively use both languages, but many do not. And in much the same way as we see for learning to walk or the age at which you lose your first tooth, we also see that some children are quicker to pick up their two languages than others. Sometimes there are seemingly obvious explanations for all this variation between children For example, there's only one parent who speaks the language in question and for whatever reason he or she doesn't spend much time with the child. At other times though, children growing up in apparently similar circumstances have very different outcomes when it comes to how well or how much they use their two or more languages. The most obvious example of when this happens is when we see large differences between brothers and sisters. What exactly causes these differences? Why do some bilingual children end up being more bilingual than others? And as a parent or professional, is there anything that you can do to maximise a child's chances of becoming as bilingual as possible? To answer these questions, I'm joined by Joanna Parody, Professor at the University of Alberta in Canada. are a whole host of factors that can affect bilingual children's language development and we can categorize these in different ways. Some of these factors relate to the child's environment whereas others are more about the child's own abilities. Some factors are specific to bilingual children whereas others are relevant to all children no matter how many languages they're learning. In research on this topic, we often talk about these as child external and child internal factors. I started by asking Joanna if she could give us some examples. Sure. So um, child internal factors are what the child themselves brings to the language acquisition process. So it can be things about their different um, cognitive abilities, different as- how their memories work. Some children have better memories than others, some adults too. Um, it can also be the age at which they start to learn uh, a second language uh, that can matter. And um 
children's different socio-emotional um, development can also play a role. So, for example, when children have socio-emotional difficulties, this can interfere with their ability to learn language. So that's the sort of internal stuff. And the child external stuff are all the things going on around the child in their family, um, who's speaking what to whom at home, um, what languages the siblings use with each other, um, the quality of the of the different uh, input in each language going on around the child. And then we go to sort of broader factors. How big is the community of speakers of the child's minority language? Does the child, as you mentioned earlier, have the opportunity to go to school in both language and develop literacy skills in both languages? And there's also family factors such as parent education, uh, parent fluency in each language as well. Let's start though with the internal factors. You've listed a few. So how, how do they affect bilingual children's language learning? So if we start, say, with age of onset, so the general wisdom is younger is better. Is that, is that true? And what does it actually mean for there to be age effects? What is that? Yeah. Well, younger is better is probably true if we're talking about if you learn a language in childhood versus if you learn it as an adult. Just about everybody knows if they start to learn a language when they're an adult, they um, might end up with a foreign accent in that language, no matter how hard they try to shake it. Um, but when we're talking about just children, so forget about adults, just among young child learners, um, younger is better is not always the case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so what a lot of the research shows is that among really young children, sometimes a little bit older means the child will be a faster learner of their second language. Um, and one of the cases that we see this most um, strikingly is it's sort of when you're talking about preschool versus school settings. So suppose parents make a deliberate choice to send their child to a preschool or daycare setting in the society language, um, and they speak a heritage language at home, and they they make that choice because they think they're giving their child the best possible start in the societal language and, um, you know, better start before school happens. But actually, what we see is that that boost that a child might get by starting to learn the societal language when they're three, by the time they're eight, it doesn't matter anymore. They they look about the same as the kids who started to learn it in the the first grade at school or kindergarten, depending on the the society you're in. School starts at different ages. Um, So when we're talking about the difference between a three-year-old and a -a five-and-a-half-year-old, um, older is sometimes better because five and a half year old is more cognitively mature. Uh-huh. They have, they have, um, uh, they also have enough, they have more of their first language in place. And both of these things can promote faster learning of the, of the second language or the societal language. And this is probably the reason why by about age, age eight, they, they catch up. And I think the, you know, one of the reasons why I like to mention this is that, you know, even though parents have the best of intentions exposing their child as young as possible to the societal language before school starts, what they're doing is also taking away some of that very crucial period for their child to learn the heritage language, because the heritage language is not really spoken outside the home and might not be spoken at school. So um, there's certainly a trade-off there between whether you really want to support the societal language or whether you want to keep the heritage language going in choices when one has a choice about preschool programming. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, in some circumstances, there is no choice, right? As If, you know, if one parent speaks one language, 
the heritage language, so the the not the language that's spoken in the community, and the other does speak the community language. So I guess in English in in the at least in the part of Canada where you are, uh, Dutch where I am. Yeah, but yet, like you said, there's a trade-off to be had there, right? Um, so, and you mentioned actually what those age effects might be, right? That the knowledge of uh, another language might actually help you in learning the second language, and that but having more developed cognitive skills. What what kind of things would we be thinking of there then, in terms of older children being more cognitively developed? Well, um, they would have stronger um, memory skills, short-term memory, being able to pick up pieces of the of the language input more more quickly and more efficiently and more accurately. They'll also have better um, reasoning skills, pattern detection, analogical reasoning, so they can sort of pick out the patterns and learn the grammar um, a little bit faster than younger children. Their attention systems are more developed so they can have longer attention span which also helps in language learning yeah one uh, factor that we've not mentioned yet that's a, a child internal factor is the idea of language aptitude in dutch we have a really great name for this a language like a uh, bump yeah so it gets called a tal and knobbel a language bump so if you, <laughs> people say if you're if you're if you're good at learning languages then you've got a language bump so anyway huh. there you go uh, but in the in research, we don't call it language bump; we call it language aptitude. We um, do. We, yeah. What 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 do we mean by that? Can you maybe explain a bit about that and and how it affects uh, children's language sure. learning? So you know, every individual has a level of language aptitude, just like we have an IQ, and we vary. And you know, most people are average. <laughs> um, and uh, but language aptitude is kind of like the the kinds of intelligence, this bump that that really really is important for language learning. And basically, there's two main things that go into language learning aptitude. One is um, your memory span, whether you can remember uh, words and sentences you hear accurately and store them in memory, because then you can process them and learn them. And we all vary in our ability to do that. Um, a simple way to test this is give somebody your phone number with your air, with the country code and everything really fast and see if they can repeat it accurately. If they can, they probably have a really good short-term memory. The other um, aspect of language aptitude that um, plays a big role is what we call analogical reasoning or pattern detection. So this is being able to see patterns that are occurring and that can be in um, shapes. It can be in things you hear, music anything. So a simple example would be if you showed a young child, um, uh, um, a, you put a bunch of blocks in a row, a triangle, a circle, and a square, and then you put a triangle, a circle, and a square again, maybe different colors. And then you put a triangle and a circle and you stop there and you say, okay, what's the next one that should be there? And if the child has processed the pattern, they go, oh, well, it's got to be a square. Children who are good at that, which uh, are actually really good at that, better than average, they're probably better than average language learners. Because when we think about it, language is full of patterns, right? Grammar is grammar's patterns. So kids who have superior memories, superior pattern detection, or analogical reasoning tend to be stronger at language learning in both their first language or her and their second language. Many children become bilingual after moving from one country to another. This move might be out of choice or out of need. In some cases, children may have fled a conflict or another dangerous situation, and as a result, their well-being may be at risk. For example, 
They may have been exposed to violence. They may have stayed in refugee camps for long periods of time, or they may have been separated from their family. These are all factors which can affect children's well-being. If you're interested in finding out more about well-being in bilingual families more generally, listen to episode three in the last season of Clet's Heads. I asked Joanna to what extent the differences we see in children's well-being also affect their language development, and so the likelihood that they will become bilingual. We know uh, increasingly more about it um, by studying mostly refugee children, especially refugee children who flow, who who've fled with their families from war and violence. Um, so children who have socio-emotional difficulties, we're talking about difficulties in mood and affects. So there can be anger, aggression, there can be depression, feelings of loneliness, and so on. And when these feelings can get really intense, when there's lots of problems with well-being, um, this can interrupt or disrupt a lot of the cognitive mechanisms and cognitive functionings that we use for learning, and not just learning languages, all kinds of learning. So a lot of socio being difficulties if a child is experiencing a lot of them, we often see that um, this can interfere with their ability to pay attention to one thing and to ignore distractions. It can influence their ability to remember things. Um, It can influence their ability to um, generally do well at school. That's been well documented. And more recently, we found that it can interfere with their ability to acquire language. Sometimes these difficulties manifest themselves in um, behaviors, external behaviors like aggression, but sometimes children internalize it and they're just sort of sad, lonely, and, and feeling separated and have low self-esteem, but it's not as easy to, to figure out that that's going on. Sometimes um, children who have extreme problems with this will have exaggerated and heightened distractions to things that aren't threatening, but they feel they're threatening such as they might feel another child's behavior is is threatening to them when it's not, or even just a loud noise or a helicopter flying outside the window of a classroom can make a child, you know, jump and go under their desk. And so we see these things happening a lot with refugee children from very difficult situations. And But only recently we've connected the socio-emotional well-being problems with learning a second language in particular. Definitely the more kids have these problems, the slower their learning is of the second language. Right. And so it's because that those problems affect the, some of the other factors that you mentioned, right? The memory and the detecting patterns. And then there's a kind of trickle down effect as it were. Is that how we should yes. see it? Yeah. A trickle down effect. Yeah. Yeah. And so what, um, is there anything that teachers or parents can do about that or to, to help children? Well, certainly children who have um, socio-well-being or mental health difficulties need uh, psychological and social support. Um, sometimes um, this needs to be um, given to them at the school level because oftentimes in refugee families, in this you know, um, these kind of situations, the parents as well can be experiencing mental health difficulties and well-being difficulties. So they may not be able to provide their child with the kind of support the child needs to um, to improve their situation and then open things up for school learning in general and language learning in particular. Yeah. We're going to leave our conversation with Joanna now to hear our first Clet's Heads quick and easy of this season. That's a concrete tip that you can put to use straight away 
to make a success of the bilingualism in your family, class or clinic. Clet's heads quick and easy. Bilingual parenting doesn't always go as smoothly as we'd like. You or your child runs into problems at school. You get frustrated because your child only speaks the school language back to you, despite the fact that you consistently speak the heritage language with them. Or you just find it too much of a hassle. In situations like these, it can sometimes help to talk to someone else who is also raising his, her or their children bilingually. They may have concrete tips for you based on their own experience. Or perhaps all you need is a listening ear from someone who recognises your situation. Either way, simply talking about how you feel can already help you move forward. This also applies to professionals, of course. Find a colleague with whom you can spar about the questions, challenges or frustrations you have with the bilingual children in your classroom or practice. So the Kletz Heads quick and easy for today is to find someone to talk about the bilingualism in your family, classroom or practice. If you already know someone, send them a message or email now or give them a call. And otherwise, start thinking today about who you might be able to approach. Kletz Heads quick and easy. Let's switch to the to the external factors. So the factors that relate to children's experiences and to the environment. Now there we know there's a whole load of variation, right? In in terms of how much children are exposed to their two languages, the type of exposure that they get, how how much they actively use their two two or more languages. If we start with what happens at home, we know that input matters. We've spoken about that a lot on the on the podcast in, in previous episodes. But does it matter to the same extent for the two languages? So the, the let's call it the school language. And there may be more than one, but let's just keep it simple. You know, there's one school language. It's the same language as the language of the of the community, the the main language, and the heritage language. So so does input matter to the same extent for the two languages? Well, interestingly enough, it, it, it doesn't matter. Different kinds of input matter differently. So that, of course, you know, children need, um, a, you know, a certain amount of input in a language to acquire it. So if you say only have one parent who speaks, so let's say the heritage or the minority language, that's going to be a struggle to get enough going at home versus the case where both parents speak the heritage or minority language and every family member has some fluency in it. So a child's going to be surrounded more at home by that language than if there's only one parent who speaks the language. So that's sort of um, number one, whereas the societal language is going to, or the school language is um, going to be carried on outside the home. So it's a, we know that the, the school language is eventually going to be acquired through schooling and, or, and outside the home. So focusing on trying to keep as much of the home in the heritage language is uh, what we see there is stronger outcomes in the heritage language when that is going on. We also see um, interesting uh, differences between whether the parents use the heritage language or the school language. Sometimes for the parents, the school language is very much their second language, and they're actually not very proficient in that language through no fault of their own. They're just, you know, migration, you know, and whatever. Um, But they often want to try to speak as much as possible in that school language at home because they, they, you know, through good intentions, want to support their child in success at school. So they figure, well, if we all speak the school language at home, that's going to help. But all the research shows that it doesn't help at all. 
the, the child uh, get advanced at all in the school language. Uh, what it does, though, unfortunately, have is the effect of making the child's ability in the heritage language go down. So, you know, for that reason, we recommend that parents speak the language they know best and they're most proficient in with their children. It's where they'll give their children the, the best input. Does it matter who's doing the talking, right? Who's providing the input? Yeah, like we find that when siblings, particularly older siblings talking to younger siblings, if they're using the school language, this can actually have a beneficial effect to the younger siblings in their development of the school language. So totally the opposite of what I just described for the parents. Um, so, and we think the reason for this is, is that older siblings are, you know, going to school, they've been acquiring the language for longer. They're probably proficient enough in the second language that they're giving good and rich input to the, to the younger siblings. And that's boosting the siblings, uh, their younger siblings ability in the school language. The downside is that when siblings are speaking the school language with each other, this has been shown longer term to have negative effects for how well they speak the heritage language. Yeah. So it's again, another trade-off, right? Uh, in a, in a certain sense. Yeah, that, that we've been talking quite a bit there about really the amount of input and we know the quality of the input also matters. You you know, you mentioned about whether you're not, not speaking a language you're not very proficient in. Parents are often told they need to provide a rich language environment, again, something that we've spoken about on the podcast already quite a few times. But maybe we can just again, for uh, those who've not heard previous episodes where we've spoken about this, maybe you can just tell us a bit more what we mean by that exactly, especially in the research context when we say, oh, we see that richness of input matters. What does that mean? And again, do we see the same effects across the two languages? Mm, yeah. So I think, you know, uh, back back in the old days, we would ask parents, um, how much does your child watch TV, like turn it on and watch it live versus how much do they read a physical book? And um, nowadays, a lot of children are doing neither of those things. And yet they're, they're still experiencing rich uh, language uh, in their input because nowadays there's media, social media, there's often video and text like literacy combined, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the most prototypical uh, example, however, of a rich language environment is still book looking, book reading, whether it's online or a physical book, activities between parents and young children, or when children get older, if they're doing this themselves. So engagement in literacy is often giving children the richest possible input. So we're talking about quality over quantity. So it's giving them more advanced vocabulary. It's giving them more advanced um, grammar and stuff that you just wouldn't experience so much in everyday conversation. And I think that right now, um, my read of the research is that um, it's not quantity of input always matters. You can't acquire a language without getting exposure to it. But we're seeing that quality matters a lot more than we ever thought it did before. Um, and I think that there are many different types of richness that we're only beginning to start to tap into beyond, say, book-looking activities. Yeah. And do you think then um, quality can sometimes trump quantity, right? If, you know, you know, you only get a little bit of input in one language, but it's really, really good input. Because I can imagine there are plenty of parents listening thinking, oh, well, maybe if we make it really, really rich, that will help even though I know I can't provide more than this. Well, 
you know, it's impossible to completely separate quality and quantity, number yeah, one. Yeah. So like even in the research, when we ask about richness of the environment, we ask how often do you read books? How frequently does your child listen to programs in this, you know, this lang- language X or, or whatever? So frequency quantities always sneaking in there. So um, and a very rich language experience, like say, um, parents want to, you know, have their child, you know, spend time with the grandparents, but the grandparents live far away. So maybe once a month, the child will spend an afternoon at the grandparents. I don't think that it, that, you know, activity or the richness of the, you know, play, grandparents playing with the child, if it's once a month, is going to impart that language to the child, however rich the activity will be, say the grandparents are the only source of that language. Yeah, so it's um, frequency and quality go hand in hand. So it's keeping up as much quality as possible, um, you know, take keeping in mind that quantity is obviously the, the bottom line here. But I do think that, um, you know, everyday language is going on all the time, and especially regulatory language, like get your coat on, get your boots on, supper's ready. And especially when we're talking about the heritage or minority language, it's so important to keep in mind that, you know, rich language is going to go on at school in the school language, but you're responsible at home and what you do outside the home, outside of school for getting rich experiences for your child in the heritage language. And, you know, this takes effort. It doesn't just come for free. You have to not, you know, some days you're tired and it's pure regulatory language with your children, but try to do as much of the, you know, richer stuff at home that you can. Um, and even things like extracurricular activities, um, the research I've done here in Canada, if children do the extracurricular activities, sports activities, dance activities, and cultural activities in the heritage language that ha- boosts their skills because they're, they're using it outside the home with new and different people. They're getting a variety of interlocutors and interaction in that language through those activities. And we even find that language is language of friendship. So if children know other children who speak the same heritage language and they choose to use that language with each other, that especially when they're reaching the teenage years, this can make it or break it for um, how well they speak the heritage language. Yeah. Yeah, so f- finding other people apart from mum or dad or whoever who speaks uh, who speaks the language. What one um, source of uh, contact with the heritage language outside of um, the home that we've not mentioned yet is well, I don't know what you call it in Canada, but in, in I know in the UK it's called complementary schools. In the Netherlands, we call it heritage language schools. And so learning essentially those literacy skills or learning to read and write in the heritage language, usually at a weekend and maybe not the best time for favorite time for children to be going to school. But we know that some children have to do it because their parents really want them to do it. Um, some children already know how to read and write, of course, in the, in the heritage language because they attended school b- before they arrived in whatever country they now, uh, now live in. What do we know from research about how knowing to read and write just knowing to be uh, being able to do it how much that affects the heritage language uh, proficiency it helps a lot but I, I i hesitate to say this because 
some parents really have no access to getting literacy training for their children. So you don't yeah. want them to feel bad because we have heritage language classes. That's what we call them in Canada. And um, they're often on the weekend and many children complain and grump and groan. And then when they're older, they're really glad that their parents sent them because they can read and they do speak their language uh, better because it's just, it's extra input. It's interaction. It's meaningful. It's, um, uh, you know, you get advanced vocabulary and grammar, although the quality of the, the instruction in these programs, it can vary widely. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, but it's also some languages are just harder. Like if your child is, you know, you're Mandarin and is speaking and Mandarin Chinese speaking, and you want your child to have literacy, it's a lot harder to teach literacy in Mandarin. It's a much more complex system than if, say, your child, you know, you want to, French and English as two languages. Like it's, you know, you have the same alphabet. And there's a yeah. lot of words that are the, basically the same and, and so on. So some of the sound to letter correspondences are easier. So for some parents, it's more of an uphill battle to give their child literacy um, than it is for others. Um, the heritage language classes certainly help, although most of the research shows the, um, the absolute best, if you want to maximize outcomes, if this is available to you, is a bilingual uh, language program where they're actually learning school content as well as the literacy skills. Yeah, because you're getting a kind, of, you're getting a two for one. You're getting this really advanced language content, and you're getting literacy skills together. Um, but a lot of the studies that we know from um, when kids grow up and they're adults, and um, and you know you you figure out how good their heritage language is at that point. Often, one of the, the most key predictive factors about whether their language is really strong once they're adults is whether they can read and write in that language. Let's head off the week. Time now for our Clets Head of the Week. This episode, our Clets Head is interviewed by Rika Fink. Originally from the Netherlands, Rika now lives in London with her own trilingual family. And here she is in conversation with... Hi, I'm Rehan Sen. I'm from India. I recently moved to London. I'm 22 years old and I speak uh, English and Malayalam. And so you um, speak English and Malayalam, and that is a language from the southern tip of India, um, the, the southwest um, in the Kerala state and surrounding areas. And it's one of the 22 um, scheduled languages of India. Can you tell me a little bit more about this language? So I think I like a fun fact that I can think of is that it's like one of the only languages, uh, if you're writing it in English, the word Malayalam, it's a palindrome, so which means that you can read it from both the sides as the same spelling. And more facts to know about it is that it's borrowed from a few other languages like Portuguese, Sanskrit, and Tamil. Can you tell me a bit about the different languages that you speak and when you started speaking them? Okay, so uh, Malayalam is my mother tongue. So that's what it is spoken in my household. So it's not an option. Like I naturally learned the language uh, and it came very easily. Uh, unlike English, which I had to like put more effort and had to be formally trained. So I started learning English when I started going to school, like with the alphabet, uh, with the writing, the grammar, which used to be such a nightmare while I was growing up. But I think when I crossed a certain stage, it became more easier, came naturally to me. And I started liking English a mo lot more. Like I started watching movies, like started reading a few books. And maybe that's why I kind of like decided to do my undergrad in English and communications. 
That makes sense. And do you do you speak different languages with different people now? Yeah, yeah. So Malayalam, uh, mostly it's in my household with my family relatives and all that stuff. Uh, but of course, uh, coming to UK, everywhere I speak in English. And with my friends, back even in Kerala, we actually speak in English only because I have my friends like from other states as well. So they speak different languages. And even though they know Malayalam because they also grew up in Kerala, uh, for some reason we chose to speak in English because uh, we met in an English medium school and it's very strict to only speak in English at school. And we stuck to it and that's what we kind of feel more comfortable in. That makes sense. And so your shared language is English with people from different states who all also speak or understand Malayalam, but that English language is, is, a, is a comfortable place for all of you to meet. So you speak lots of different languages. You were speaking about Malayalam, English, then Hindi, Arabic. I can't speak Arabic too. So I just started getting the hang of Arabic. Like I started watching the Arabic cartoons and stuff. Uh, but then when I, I moved back to India, so I completely forgot all the letters and numbers. And Hindi, I could like, I have broken, uh, I can speak in a broken way. But I completely understand Hindi. So all of my friends uh, in the UK, mainly they are from north of India. So they speak in Hindi. So they mix Hindi and English a lot of the times. Or if there is some other people standing there who doesn't know Hindi and they want to talk about them, they would choose to speak it in Hindi. So I can completely understand. So you can understand when your friends here in the UK mix Hindi and English. And then would you speak mostly in English or would you also mix some Hindi in? I mostly speak in English only. Like if they are, if they are saying some Hindi, I reply back in English. And I might as a joke would say some things in Hindi because they find it funny because of the accent is very different when I try to say it in Hindi. How important is it for you to be able to speak your different languages, particularly Malayalam and English? For me personally, uh, I want to make sure that I know English well because that's one common language. It's so important wherever you go, I think you will be able to survive if you know English. So in that sense, and also for my interest for it, so it was very important for me to like keep on like honing my skills and develop the language. I still have like so much more room to develop English, like knowing more vocabulary, like have better speaking skills. Um, so in that sense, but but I don't know. I honestly does don't have much attachment to Malayalam. And that is partly because you moved quite quite early on. Yeah, I moved quite a few times, so I did not end up learning the language. And I had a lot of other languages I had to learn at school. So it was never a priority. And then it be I think when I reached my ninth grade, uh, in my summer vacation, I was kind of forced to learn how to read and write in Malayalam. So like, Because it was so important for my dad uh, that I learned the language. So I, I learned the few letters of it. And then when the vacation got over, I didn't have... like. Uh, I didn't have like a situation where I had to write or read because I'm basically reading it in English or if I'm speaking it also it will be in English so I just forgot Malayalam. That makes sense for, so for you that is a that is a language that you listen to um, and that you speak but that you can't actively um, write in. Yeah I cannot I, I, in Kerala I could speak in Malayalam but then like reading and writing all is happening in English so it is never a need so if I'm at school I need to know English because we have to like study everything is happening in English. If I'm watching movies or the music I listen to, it's all in English. So uh, you're kind of like forced to know English, actually. 
but that's not the case in malayalam so if you are not using it then you just start forgetting it slowly so that in that so i forgot uh, all the letters what i had learned for that one month and do you ever talk about your, with your friends about being bilingual not necessarily but then i always used to think how it is like for the people so like if their mother is and the dad is speaking two other languages their native language would be a mix of both so how do they segregate them while speaking like how do they know this and this is like a two different language in my case i started learning english a little more later on and it was really hard at the time too so i was more comfortable speaking in malayalam so i know that separation between it this two are different languages that's something which i recently used to think if both are you acquire it like how do kids know the difference like how do they separate when they speak this and this are two different languages yeah that's a really that's a really good question and in your case you have your family language and then the language that you learned at school um and actually you learned quite a lot of languages at school as well in which languages do you dream i think so i think i dream in both english and malayalam so if like it's a situation that is happening at home uh then the i hear like it's in malayalam but if it's like with my friends or the class if the situations are different then it would be in english and you were already saying if you're with friends here in the uk you might like to make jokes by using some yeah. hindi yeah in and when you're when you're back home in in what languages do you like to make jokes uh so it's a, i like to make jokes both in english and malayalam because the kind of jokes when you say it in uh malayalam you can't do that in english the delivery and that's it's kind of different the style is different so just for the uh comical aspect of it beats it, it is not just me even my friends when they have to deliver a joke they might be saying it in uh malayalam it depends on the joke and the situation and imagine if you have your own children at some point when you're older what language would you like to speak to them or languages perhaps so personally uh like if at all i want to how kids i would be adopting them so i feel like and i'll be teaching them english and the other language would be depends on where we are living and i feel like what the school is offering it'd be nice if they could learn if they are interested to learn french or spanish but then much later on i feel like uh, i would let them choose but it's i think it's very important for me that they know english though because it's one language like i said it's connecting you and wherever you go uh, it helps you survive the world Hmm. And is there a skill you would still like to learn in in any of your languages? In Malayalam, honestly, uh I did not enjoy like I said for one month I spent time learning Malayalam again forcefully. So since that experience I did not enjoy at all. So it kind of gave me a little trauma of like okay, I'm not doing this ever again. So in that sense, personally I don't feel like learning any skills in Malayalam, but then I'm very interested to like increase my vocabulary in english and uh, a lot better like speaking and writing skills and what is then in your way or in your opinion the best way to learn a language okay so the best way which i believe is that it's not the most practical thing like if i'm suggesting you to go and learn malayalam i would tell you to move to kerala and live there for a year or two because that is the best way you could learn a language because you get the opportunity to speak with people in malayalam and or like any other languages that's the best way and in the most more practical sense is that i would ask you to just go and watch movies or music if you and if you are a person who enjoys 
listening to music then i would suggest you to listen to music in their language like in the case of hindi i think beginning few years i did not i was i was just by hearting all the letters but i still couldn't understand the sentences and stuff like i'm learning the question and answer just for the sake of scoring but when i started to watch cartoons in hindi that's when i started to understand hindi what is it about cartoons that helped you to learn hindi uh okay so it's not just cartoons it's movies mm-hmm. but since i was a kid uh, i enjoyed animation a lot like even when i was learning uh, like arabic at the time i'm i'm ready to watch anything in uh, anything animated i'm ready to watch that's wonderful so mixing the language with something that you enjoy and can you say what your favorite word is in malayalam is there a is there a fun word or maybe a word that sounds or looks like a word in english but actually means something else i was saying this to my friend recently so you know the word mean being mean to someone mean it actually means fish in malayalam so if i ask you to give me some give me some mean then actually i'm asking for nourishment yeah <laughs> that's amazing thank you so much and it was lovely speaking with you thanks for inviting me this is like a really fun opportunity thanks to rihan and to vika for this interesting conversation One thing that struck me in what Rihan said about his experiences learning to read and write in Malayalam and about learning Hindi is that enjoying yourself and not feeling like you've been forced to do something is key. Unfortunately, that's the first and last clet said of the week that Vika was able to find an interview for us. This means that we're now looking for new clet heads who would like to appear on the podcast. Do you have a bilingual child in your midst who loves a good conversation? Or do you know someone who grew up with more than one language who has an interesting story to tell? Perhaps you are that someone. If so, drop us a line and perhaps you, your child or someone else you know will be the next Clets Head of the Week. You can contact us via social media, the website or by sending us an email. The address is kletsheads at ru.nl Let's head off the week So we've kind of spoken now about the ways in which all these different factors can affect the two languages but mostly separately right so one might affect this language the heritage language more than the uh, the school language or, or the other way around but I, i think i started out by asking you know what makes some children more bilingual than others and bilingual you know in the sense that they're they're proficient in both languages and can actively use both languages to what extent is the research looking at the effect of all these different predictors on children becoming really bilingual right their proficiency in both languages This is like the absolutely most important question and I wish research could give us a really clear answer. Um I think that um some of the things that we see constantly equally affecting both languages like something that if a child has this in both language, you know, they'll be stronger and more bilingual. One of the things that we see over and over again is if they have high language aptitude. So high language aptitude is going to predict um better uh, better proficiency stronger proficiency more bilingualness in both languages however parents can't change that there's nothing that parents can can do about that so it's kind of like useless information if we're thinking about advice to parents because your kids language aptitude is your kids language aptitude and 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 that's that so i think um from my perspective 
Um, I think that always trying to err on the side of pushing more for the heritage language or the minority language is kind of the way to go. Like, you know, don't worry about, well, first of all, it's impossible to equally balance in a family situation with everything going on, how much you speak each language necessarily, but trying to be mindful of the fact that the heritage language is the one that needs more boosting and more support and more effort and energy if true like competence and bilingualism and you know good 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 proficiency in both languages is the goal for that child the school and community societal language will often kind of just take care of itself in a situation where the heritage language is a very minority language so just trying to do what you can to have rich quantity and quality of input um but always try to you know keep in mind, gee, how much is happening in the heritage language? How much are we speaking it? Are we watching shows? Are we reading books in that language? Are we going out to cultural activities in that language? Just trying to trying to make sure you, you do that as much um, as you can. Maybe the closest dance lessons for your child is in the societal language, but if you drive across town, it's in the heritage language, and maybe it's worth the effort. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think, you know, like you said, it depends also on your goals as a parent, right? I mean, for some parents, uh, being proficient in both languages isn't necessarily a goal. And one other thing that I think is important to mention that we've also spoken about on the podcast before is making sure that there are like genuine opportunities for language use, right? To, you know, because children will often, for example, reply in the school language if they know that mom and dad uh, understands that. So yeah, again, you know, yeah, looking for the other language speaker. The other speakers of that heritage language outside of the home can often help help with that as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, we're, we're going to uh, wrap up um, shortly, but I've got two more questions for you. And the first is uh, really about something that you've done a lot of, uh, of research on, namely about children with um, DLD, so developmental language disorder, right? So I think what we've been talking about so far is research that's been done with what we call typically developing uh, bilingual children. So um, children who are grown out up without a developmental language disorder. Um, we spoke, we have a whole episode on that. So if you're listening and you don't know what that is or how, what that, how that relates to bilingual children or how you find out if a bilingual children has DLD, then um, you can go listen to that episode and we'll put the link in the show notes. But do the factors that we've spoken about today also affect language development in bilingual children with DLD in the same way as they do typically developing children? Well, you know, this is interesting because the research on um, individual differences or these child internal external factors and children with developmental language disorder and other communication disorders is kind of in its infancy. So what we know right now is kind of just small pieces and, and, and we hope to build on them. Um, so basically what we see when we do studies is the child internal factors often, ex you know, 
seem to affect more strongly individual variation in kids with DLD than they do in typically developing bilinguals. So we see things like, you know, language aptitude and age of onset and chronological age and all of these things popping up as explaining why one child with DLD might be better in that language or more bilingual um, than another. And um, the reason for this is that kids with DLD often have mild cognitive deficits and they develop some of their cognitive skills that they need to learn language more slowly, which is the reason, one of the proximal reasons why they have a language disorder. So often as they get older, they become better language learners and they'll become more um, bilingual or better at the second language when they're older than when they're younger because it takes them longer to get there. They need much more input to get to the same place. Um, so I guess that, you know, if you round up a bunch of kids and you, you look at how much input they're getting in, say, their second language, and some of them have developmental language disorder and some of them are typically developing, you'll see that how much input they're getting is going to really affect the typically developing kids. You're going to see high, low, and medium outcomes based on high, low, and medium input, like really simple, really straightforward. Um, with the DLD kids, you might not see it be so straightforward. You might see that if they have stronger cognitive skills, that's what's going to matter more. And it's just because that the, the kids with DLD just need more, much, much more input, input and iterations with everything to actually learn the stuff. Right. But wouldn't you then, so I can imagine people about me listening thinking, but then wouldn't, if then input matters more, why wouldn't you see that that has a greater effect? It's because we're not measuring it properly in our studies. So we're just taking kids who are say, oh, let's just take a bunch of five-year-olds. Some of them have DLD. Some of them are typically developing. Okay, let's see how much input they're getting in each language at home. Boom, we see this matters for the TD kids because, you know, we just from everything we've been talking about here, the typically developing kids, but the DLD kids, it doesn't seem to matter. Why? It's because they need more of it for it to matter. You can't just take one snapshot at one time. You have to look at them over time um, for a longer period of time to see where where differences and how much input they're getting are going to play out in the language skills. We're not doing the research right to get the answers we need is the sh is basically my take on it at this point. Yeah. And well, actually, that's a perfect segue into my uh, last question. Um, right. Because, you know, one of the goals of the of the podcast is to make research findings about bilingual children accessible to parents and, and professionals. So we're often mostly focusing on, you know, what are the things that we know? What have we got evidence for, as we have done in our conversation today? But of course, like you've just mentioned, there are many things that we we don't know or which we don't know enough about to be able to say something very concrete. So you've mentioned just one of them, right? We don't know enough about what happens long-term with, uh, for example, bilingual children with DLD and how that relates to how much input they hear. But are there maybe other things that we don't know so much about that we can't really say anything too concrete about or that we maybe need to be a bit careful about? I think it's really important to, as you know, language scientists that we also talk about, okay, these things... I think we can, there's consensus, right? You know, researchers agree that this matters. There are other things where people, you know, maybe we don't know enough right now, right? So are there certain things that, you know, what we've spoken about today or or maybe about things that we've not spoken about where you think, well, you know, that's a bit 
you know, we'll we'll see whether we're still saying that in five, ten years or these <laughs> things we don't, we, you know, this we still really need to find out about. Oh, wow. So I'll have to contain myself because, of course, there's lots and lots of things that I think we need to work on harder and know more about. What what I would like to see more of is really understanding um, how what happens inside people's homes with how they encourage their children to use the heritage language because we all know you try the heritage language and the children reply in the school language. Everybody has experienced this. So um, what are the strategies that work? And what are the strategies that might not work? And you know what? To be honest, there isn't any kind of strong research base telling us. So we need to go into homes and see things. You know, does it work to just continue on with the conversation? Um, does it work if you flag it for the child and use encouragement to use the, the heritage language? You know, what works? Um, so we need to know that because yeah. parents need to know that. And we really don't know that. Um Another thing that we don't know a lot about is how things like things like family attitudes toward bilingualism, are they pro-bilingualism? Are they bilingualism just by accident through immigration? And they um, maybe they don't really know whether they're pro-bilingualism or not. Does this make a difference to children's bilingual outcomes? We have no idea. Um, if families have language policies, you know, like on Saturday, we all speak only the heritage language or, you know, do these things matter at all? Or are parents wasting their time? Um, and, and the other thing we don't know a lot about is as kids grow older, you know, because we're not just, I mean, I'm not, personally, I'm not con concerned just about bilingualism. When kids are little, you want it to be a lifetime. Most parents, the goal is that children will always speak both languages, yeah. you know, as yeah. they grow older. And how much does um, how much children have ethnocultural identity or cultural preferences, or as children go older and they choose what what media they interact with, uh, how does this predict their outcomes? You know, working with older kids and teenagers, we never do that, or not never, but hardly ever. Yeah, not not as much as uh, as we might, right? Because often. Um much of what we do is with children who are preschool, primary school age yep. uh, uh, yeah. kids. So. so there's plenty of research that's still to be done then. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, that's maybe a, a good note uh, A good note to end on. Thanks for taking the time uh, today oh, to talk to us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Okay. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So there are a whole host of reasons why some bilingual children end up being more bilingual than others. We heard that younger isn't always better and that it's a good idea in the early years to concentrate on the heritage language. We also heard that the amount and type of input children hear at home is important and crucially research suggests that this is especially the case for the heritage language. Extracurricular activities like attending complementary schools or heritage language schools and friendships involving the heritage language are just two ways in which you can create richer input and increase your child's chances of becoming and remaining an active bilingual. These are some of the factors that you have control over as a parent to a certain extent then, but they're in any case malleable, so things that you can change. But there are also factors that impact on children's bilingual outcomes that you can't change. The language aptitude is an example of this. In many instances, if not all, there's no one size fits all. No one factor that wins out above all others. As Joanna said, it's often a trade-off. 
The choices parents make are personal and will depend on individual circumstances, individual children and even the languages in question. What's crucial though is that you're aware of the potential consequences of the choices you make as a parent or the advice you give as a teacher or clinician. I hope this episode will help you make some of those choices. We'll be back in a month with an episode about identity. What is it and how does it develop in children growing up with two or more languages? If you want to make sure you don't miss that one, then please subscribe if you haven't already done so. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it will be wonderful if you could take the time to rate Clet's Heads or even write us a review. You can do that in your podcast app and it will help us reach more listeners. That's it for now. Until the next time. If you want to know more about Clet's Heads, go to our website at kletsheadspodcast.org. That's where you'll also find more information about this episode. If you want to make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to Clet's Heads using your favourite podcast app. If you know someone else who might enjoy the podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you would share it with them. You can do this via the website or in your podcast app. And if you're on social media, we'd love it if you followed us. Our handle is at Kletzheads. Thanks for listening and until the next time. Or as we say in Dutch, till the volgende keer.